All right, you ready? I'm going to call now. Let's do it. What are you hailing? Hi, I'm Rob. And I'm Michelle. And we're two, two librarians, librarians walking to a, a shelf. shelf. And today we have a very special guest that we're thrilled to uh, welcome to the show, Mr. Grady Hendricks. Hey, y'all. Um, also, I have to ask, two librarians walk into a shelf that sounds painful. Is that intended? Yes and no. <laughs> if you bump your head on the corner, it hurts. Yeah, I can imagine. Like, I, I just have this image of both of you walking full force into a shelf and blood gushing from your noses and... Uh, it's terrifying. Yeah. Some days that's how it goes. Yeah. Bumps all over our foreheads. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Looks like we've been in a fight. Um, You're going to have to like exorcist up that uh, library, you know, start wrapping <laughs> everything and like padding you make out of sheets and stuff. It's a good, we, we probably ought to think about that. We probably should. We could probably get all kinds of stuff to cover the corners of the shelves to help us out. But, yeah, I just imagine your heads, your skulls are just these lumpy balls of contusions <laughs> by now, like so many concussions. Actually, you make a good point. It's probably too late for us. We'll do it for everyone else. Yeah, <laughs> for, future, for future generations of librarians. Uh, the first thing we wanted to talk about today was we wanted to talk about the Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires. Yeah. It's still really popular in our system and is still on a really long holds list. Um, really? I, oh, that's great. Y'all have to buy a lot more. Yes. <laughs> we are hoping to. I'm finding that it's popular with people, including myself, who don't normally like horror books. That's good to hear. So you're the first like author of horror that I've read in adulthood. And I'm wondering, do you see that uh, happening more? Is this something that you're noticing? Is the current state of the world pushing people more into the genre? I don't know what it is exactly. I feel like people are more open to horror now than they have been in a while. I think some of it is that horror has gotten super highbrow, like get out and stuff. Um, his mate has done a lot to make it respectable. And then I think, unlike The Witch, you know, that was a pretty classy movie. I feel like we've all been living with Stephen King for most of our adult lives. And so the idea of horror books being bestsellers is pretty familiar. That wasn't the case before, like, the early 70s. And even after that, there was a lot of pushback on that. And then I think the third thing is that horror has become really ubiquitous. I mean, I feel like I can't turn around without walking into Walking Dead advertising. And and I think a lot of the, the dislike of horror is, is well-earned. I mean, there's a longer story here that I won't bore people with. But, you know, horror got huge after Rosemary's Baby, the book, and then the movie in 67. And then The Exorcist came out and, and the book and the movie. And then a book by Thomas Tryon called The Other, which had a movie, but no one cared about it. But the book was a big bestseller in the early 70s. And so there was this huge boom in, in horror publishing, you know, and publishing likes nothing more than to copy other things that have done well. So there was this big boom in horror, especially in paperback through the 70s and 80s. And then in the early 90s, it kind of died for a lot of reasons. But one of the things that killed it was overproduction. There were just too many books getting made. They were too cheap. They were too crummy. They were just getting thrown out there by publishers. And a lot of them were serial killer books because Silence of the Lambs had been a big hit. The movie had won eight Oscars in 91 and the book had done well in 88. And a lot of the books 
were coming out of, and, and the movies too, to some extent, but they were coming out of sort of the splatterpunk movement in the mid to late eighties, which was this real pushback against the right wing, uh, moral majority and, and sort of the Christian conservative movement. And so the stuff was super duper gory and over the top. And unfortunately our, our forefathers were far less evolved than we are because we've solved sexism at this point. But back then, you know, in the early 90s, people were still sexist, if you can believe it. And so a lot of the victims in these books were women. And so what you had was this huge glut of really, really violently misogynistic books getting dumped onto the market, all about women getting sort of raped and murdered on every page. And and it was really gross stuff. And, and, and not everything was like that, but there was a lot of it. And I think that really... And, and horror sort of horror publishing kind of died in 95. And I think it went out in this bubble that was just viewed as really gross and icky and misogynistic and, and grotesquely sexualized. And so I think people really, we still have that hangover, right? Like you say horror and people start thinking of women tied up in basements, you know, getting murdered. And I think what one of the good things with horror is there's this sort of received wisdom that it kind of died out in the 90s. but what happened, I think, is that horror moved to TV. And what you have now is a huge generation of people, men and women, who grew up watching The X-Files and Buffy the Vampire Slayer and then later stuff like Charmed and Supernatural. And and they really expect more from horror than scares and gore. They grew up seeing that horror could be funny that horror could be romantic, that horror could be serious, that horror could be about friendship, it could be about families. And so I feel like we've got that generation has sort of grown up and are having their own kids now and who grew up expecting more from horror. And I think, you know, stuff like Get Out and The Witch and things like that have sort of been like, ooh, horror can be classy and, and serious. And then you have stuff like The Walking Dead that's just everywhere. So it's it's a real boom time for horror. Um, we've had them before, but this one this this one's ours. And I'm sorry, that was a ridiculously long answer for a really <laughs> simple, straightforward question. No, I think I think that was a great answer. It all kind of it makes sense to me uh, what you said about because I I grew up watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but as an adult, I kind of moved. I, I didn't like scary, didn't like gory, didn't like horror, but um, lately it's what's been piquing my interest more. Um, and to be honest, right, right. Your, your book cover for Southern Vampires uh, or Slaying Vampires is um, is w- what caught my attention first. Yeah, and that was really conscious. Like one of the things is we, re- I really wanted to like listen. I love people who like horror. I mean, they're they're the people I grew up with. I like horror, but if you're gonna sell a lot of books, you need to reach beyond that audience, you know, and, and get it to a mainstream audience who, like you said, doesn't really think of themselves as people who read horror. So we made a real attempt to hit that audience, both with the cover design, sort of clashing it up a little, and and also with the book. Like, I'm not gonna lie, I knew putting the word book club in a, in a book title would, would immediately pique people's interest. And I didn't really want Southern in there, but my editor was like, you know, it, it actually, you know, it, that, that really, people like that. And, and they were right. And, and I think it sounds good together. But there was a real attempt to sort of reach beyond average horror readers, reach more people who just think of themselves as, you know, I, I never read horror. That stuff's gross. I think it worked. Thanks. Yeah. Um, So let's talk about the book a little more. When I read the book, I was particularly struck by how the women were constantly sidelined and dismissed when they had very legitimate concerns. 
And it felt very real to me. And it definitely felt realistic for the time period and the location that you were writing about. So I'm curious, were those women inspired by women from your life? And did you witness similar things in the area that you were raised in? Everyone in my books, every every person in my books is, is based on a real person. But it, it could be someone I grew up with or it could be someone I saw walking down the street one day. Like they all sort of start out with some seed. By the time I'm done with them, no one recognizes themselves. I don't think anyone's ever recognized themselves in my books. My mom is convinced she's Patricia. She's not Patricia. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Patricia's definitely not based on my mom. Except for a few small mannerisms I stole from her. But my mom did have a book club. And I mean, I think they just celebrated their 42nd anniversary. So I really grew up with them. And I and I really hated them as a kid. I just sort of <laughs> was like, Ugh. all these women would come over to the house and they were loud and like they'd get, you know, cake and things that I wasn't allowed to touch. They would sit in the fridge taunting me. And I didn't think much of the books they read. Like, you know, kids are pretty judgmental. And as I got older, I realized that, you know, and I, and I got to think of these women as not just like, oh, you know, so-and-so's mom or such-and-such, such, you know, the math tutor or so-and-so who drives carpool. And I got to think of them as actual and, 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 and have a relationship with them as actual human beings. You know, I realized that I had tremendously underestimated them. And um, like most human beings, they live challenging, difficult, full lives. I had really underestimated them. And part of it was on purpose, right? Like, I think a lot of women, and I think especially moms, and I think especially other moms, they have this real, they don't like ugly, and they have this real push to, they, they really want to make things look easy. So they tend to keep a lot of things to themselves. A lot of these women in my mom's book club had gone through real serious stuff in their lives, but it was stuff they didn't like to talk about a whole lot, or it was over with, or they moved on from. So it was easy to underestimate them. They, they made it easy because I think a lot of them didn't want to dwell on bad stuff. Yeah, I definitely noticed that as the the theme. And and so when I was reading some reviews and some criticism, some of the criticism was that you leaned into some stereotypes a little too hard. I'm wondering if you feel that people who saw those stereotypes portrayed then discounted the book as sexist or otherwise missed the point. Oh, gosh, I I never read reviews. (laughs) So, yeah, so I don't know. I mean, you know, here's the thing, right? I mean, this is genre fiction. So the emphasis is on the story, much more so than if it was literary fiction, where the emphasis is much more on the eternals of the character and things like that. And so you have to make choices when you're doing that about what you're going to focus on and how deep you're going to go. I mean, there's a version of this book. I think this was 105,000 words. This, there was a version of this book that was like 195,000 words. that had lots of backstory on all these women and their families and all this stuff. But it's just... That's not what people were there for, man. It says on the cover of Vampires and Book Club. We want to get to that stuff. So you really do have to, you know, write the characters the best you can. But sure, some people may find it limited. And I also think, though, I I mean, if people are saying that the sexism was cartoony um, or that sort of like, you know, that dude thing talking down to women and the way guys can be around women. I don't know, man. I I feel like that has a lot more to do with the person reading it and what they choose to believe or not believe about the world. So for someone like me who is new to the horror genre, who may be kind of a weenie about it, uh, (sighs) what else would you recommend I read? Oh, well, it all depends. Like, what do you like? Do you like thrillers? Do you like supernatural stuff? Like, what do you, what's the kind of stuff you read in general? Normally, I would be reading like romance or 
mystery thrillers? Okay. So a couple of things jump to mind. I mean, one is if you really want to read something truly great, it's very fall and very Halloween. Shirley Jackson's We've Always Lived in the Castle is a really, really phenomenal book. And it unfortunately gets assigned to people sometimes for like their English lit classes and so they're prejudiced against it. But it's amazing. I mean, it really is. It's told in the voice of this girl whose family basically lives away from their town. And you sort of find out why throughout the book. And it's just, it's short, it's fast, it sucks you in. If you want something a little more horrific, I would say that Joan Sampson's uh, The Auctioneer, which just got reissued about a year ago, she wrote one book in the 70s, The Auctioneer, and then and then passed away a few weeks after it came out. But it is an amazing book. It's a very spare, stripped-down story about a rural community where an auctioneer shows up and, and asks the people to just donate a little something, like some old furniture they have around or, or an old wagon wheel, you know. And the benefits of the auction will go to the local police department. And yeah, everyone's fine with that. And then he has another auction and needs more stuff and then more stuff, and then more stuff. And it's this amazing book about people, a community that gets caught up in something that they know they need to stop and they know is wrong, and, and no one no one's willing to bell the cat. No one, no, one, no one wants to make a fuss. No one wants to be disagreeable. Um, and it all goes to hell. You guys are in Alabama, right? We are. Yes. So one of my favorite authors and he's been out of print for a while but back in the 80s he was a huge deal and like Stephen King was a big fan of his is a guy named Michael McDowell who wrote a bunch of books mostly set in the Gulf Coast region and a lot in Alabama sort of more in the eastern Alabama and a lot of them been coming back into print so his book The Elementals is absolutely fantastic Michael McDowell's most famous today, he's passed away, but he's most famous today for having written the screenplays for Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas and Beetlejuice. And when you read The Elementals, you'll see little bits of Beetlejuice in there, like a teenage girl who's very gothic, who uh, has a very weird relationship with her dad. It's very much Winona Ryder and Beetlejuice. But he also wrote a series of books. There were six of them. And they all got published about a month apiece called The Blackwater Saga. And it's basically about a family growing up in Alabama from about, I think, I think it's like 1914 up to about the late 1960s. And it is amazing. It is the 100 years of solitude of horror paperback fiction in the 80s. And the family, it's a totally Southern, I mean, I, I, I'm from South Carolina. I recognize my people in there. It's, it's a totally Southern family saga, but they also happen to have married into a family of underwater amphibious river monsters. But it is phenomenal. It's long. It's, uh, it's six books long, but it's really, really an astounding book. And it's one of the most sort of regionally specific Southern books I've ever read. But there's a ton of stuff out there. You know, there's all kinds of people like um, you've got people like Carmen Maria Machado is writing really great literary fiction. She just wrote a book called The Dream House that's sort of a horror novel about an abusive relationship she was in, but sort of told as a haunted house book. I mean, there's so much out there. Paul Tremblay's Survivor Song just came out, which is about a airborne, um, I think it's a coronavirus uh, pandemic it breaks out in New England, like no coincidence. I don't think this is all his fault or some you know, <laughs> marketing strategy gone awry. So there's just so much out there. You know, it's really, 
I mean, there's an embarrassment of riches these days, whether you want to read stuff that's reissued like uh, Michael McDowell or Joan Sampson, or you want to go back further to uh, Shirley Jackson. Oh, and another one people might like is Anne Rivers Siddons, who's mostly known as a Southern author who writes like what are dismissively called women's novels. She wrote one horror novel called The House Next Door. It's set in um, suburban Atlanta, and it's a Nominal. I mean, it's just these kids, and they get an architect, and they build this modern house, and just, just wrong. And it's really, really phenomenal. And one of the things that's so great about it is, I think everyone's a little tired of haunted houses with ghosts and chain, you know, all that blood tripping from the ceiling. Like, we've seen that. That doesn't impress anyone anymore. But I think one of the things that I responded to so much in this book is, in the house next door, one of the things the house does to destroy you is it shames you publicly by dredging up sort of the things about you you're ashamed of. And it's really, really, it's great. That does sound horrifying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, I would like to ask, I've read My Best Friend's Exorcism, and I love that because it's got this great balance of humor and horror. Do you find uh, some humor in A Scary Story important? Well, you know, I can't help it. I'm sort of built that way. Like, I have to write about the world the way I see it. And that's kind of how I see it. I mean, to me, that's how real life happens. One minute you're dancing around and you're like, you know, with your underwear pulled up real high trying to make your wife laugh. And then you get a phone call that your dad just died. One second you're like singing along to Eye of the Tiger as you're driving down the street. And the next minute you've been T-boned by another car. And you're in the hospital. That's just the way the world looks to me. The the stupid and the silly is right next to the serious and the horrible. Yeah. Um, Were there any authors that you read that that did that balancing act with humor and horror that you enjoyed reading or enjoy reading now? To me, I think, well, most writers have some elements of humor. and That's because those are the writers I pick. But to me, it's almost everyone. Like Shirley Jackson is a tremendously gifted, funny writer. I mean, she wrote two books about raising her kids, Life Among the Savages and Raising Demons. They're devastatingly good, um, as well as writing Haunting of Hill House and We've Always Lived in the Castle, which are really dark books, but also have funny moments. Well, Hill House, uh, Hill House doesn't have so many funny moments, but Castle does. Um, Stephen King, there's a lot of humor in his books. Even Clive Barker, for such an edge lord, has humor in his books. So yeah, it's really, um, I see a lot of it, but that's because that's what I kind of choose to, to read. Okay. Um, you pretty much wrote the book about horror paperbacks <laughs> with paperbacks from <laughs> Literally, hell. Yeah. Yes. Um, and that, that's, that was my introduction to your work. And, and I responded to this book immediately just because these were the books that I grew up reading. Um, and I love this book. And anybody that grew up in this era reading these books uh, will love this book. What to you are the ingredients that make a great horror novel cover? Oh, well, you know, it depends on when you are. But there's a, there's some things that always work. Dolls always work. Dolls are really popular, especially a doll with a broken face. Clowns. They're not enough. You know, Alan Ryan wrote this book in the 80s called Dead White about a trains full of demonic circus clowns who show up in a snowbound little New England town to to wreak revenge. And it doesn't really live up to its potential, starting with the cover, which in with, with a book about demonic clowns, they went for an all-white cover. Like, it's just white. It's just a complete blank white cover because it's like they're snowed in. I really, I just, 
such a missed opportunity. It's a little like the little people, John Christopher's uh, notorious book about Nazi leprechauns. That cover is crazy. Yeah. Well, that, but see, that's the thing. You're looking at the um, Hector Garrido cover, which is, I mean, it's a work of art. Hector Garrido was a madman, and that cover is absolutely insane and dynamic. And there's leprechauns with Nazi armbands and bullwhips and all this stuff. But then you look at, like, I'm trying to think, I think the guy's name was Paul Bacon, who did the hardcover of The Little People. And it's literally an all white cover with a little, like, foot and an elf shoe disappearing off one side of it. And I admire the restraint in someone who can read a book about a castle full of Nazi leprechauns and just draw a foot. That's admirable. That's some. That's someone who can look at like two pieces of pie in the fridge and just eat one. But yeah, so so clowns don't get used enough. Dolls are very very popular. And skeletons, you know, skeletons are always a big deal. I mean, skeleton doctors, skeleton piano players, skeleton cowboys, skeleton graduates, skeleton Indian chiefs, skeleton car drivers. I mean, the skeletons really. I mean, that's really what I learned from these covers is skeletons can do anything they set their hearts to, really. <laughs> that was the uh, that was the zebra line of, of horror that had all the skeletons on everything, just yeah. about even books that weren't appropriate. <laughs> yeah, and it really like, yeah. I mean, I read one, what was it called? Blood Sisters. And it's a William Thiessen cover. And William Thiessen was really interesting because he was really regarded among artists as one of the great American illustrators, like right up there with like Wyeth and Norman Rockwell, like, but he would do anything. He was really prolific. And so he did a ton of horror paperback covers. And you can always tell his covers because he loved to paint flowers. So he gets flowers on there somewhere. And he did this cover for Blood Sisters, which is like a skeleton in a tapping gown, like at the graduation with diploma, sniffing a flower, you know, leaving aside the fact skeletons don't have noses. And the book itself is just about a, a class reunion where these four women who are now middle-aged meet up in Kansas for their class reunion. And it turns out they pulled a prank back in the day and one of them got scared into having a personality, but now she's fine. Like literally nothing happens. It's kind of amazing. I mean, I really, I, I was really impressed. <laughs> How active are you in designing the overall look of your books and the covers? Oh, not very at all. I mean, I worked for Quirk, my publisher, for a very long time, and they did all my books up through Southern Book Club. They would give me the nice thing about a small publisher is they give you a little more input. And I think most people want you to be happy with the cover. Like they want their author to be happy. They don't want you out there promoting something you think stinks. So they'll usually talk to you and give you give you some input. But, but at the end of the day, it's the editor's job or the art director's job. One of the nice things was with the horror store book I did, which was um, about a haunted Ikea, and the book is shaped like the trim size is an Ikea catalog, and it looks like an Ikea catalog, and it's got order forms in it and advertising and furniture layout pages. And that was a case where it was going to start with just the cover and the trim size, which looked like an Ikea catalog. And I started to have so much fun having a back and forth with Andy Reid, the art director, and my editor, Jason Rakulik, we just kept adding things. Um, and so it wound up where it is now. And um, I had actually written as a freelancer catalog copy and, and, and small print for catalogs and things. So it was a lot of fun to write that stuff for like nefarious purposes. That's cool. 
Well, I, I do love – we have both copies of uh, My Best Friend's Exorcism, the hardback, which I really like that, the yearbook cover. And then you've got characters that have signed the yearbook. And then, of course, oh, that – Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was great. And then, of course, the cover for the paperback, the VHS. I just absolutely fell in love with that. So, Yeah, and that's interesting because the hardcover was done by this guy, Tim – Tim O'Connell or Tim O'Donnell. Gosh, I can't remember. It's been a while. Um, and he really went all out on that. And he actually got something like 22 different teenagers to sign the inside of the cover. So he'd make sure all the handwriting was different and the pen and the weight and everything. And then he left and this guy who'd been an art director at court named Doozy Horner came back and they were just going to use the hardcover cover for the paperback and Doozy was like, nope, doing this VHS thing. And they really didn't have enough time to do it. But he managed to find this artist, Hugh Fleming, I think is his name, this Australian guy who was willing to do it. But he was like, I'll give you one sketch and you can give me input. And then I'm doing a finished product. And usually you do multiple sketches. You give lots of back and forth. If you hire an artist for like that, he's like, you get one. And so, okay. And he nailed it first time out. I mean, there were a few minor things that got tweaked. It was pretty incredible. And I'm very grateful because that cover has sold a lot of books and it's entirely due to the fact that Doogie was like, nope, we're, we're doing this the right way or not at all. That's great. That's great. It paid off. It's uh, it stays checked out. That's for sure. It does. <laughs> all right. Uh, next question. What is your favorite Halloween candy? You know, it's interesting. I'm, I really in real life, really, really love Reese's peanut butter cup, but I don't like getting them for Halloween because they get mushed and mashed and things like that. So actually, my favorite Halloween candy is those bite-sized Butterfingers because a full Butterfinger bar is too much. They, you bite into it and it crumbles all over your front. The bite-sized ones are perfect. But then again, who wants to sit around with a big bite-sized, like a bag of bite-sized Butterfingers? So Halloween is perfect for those. You get the bite-sized ones. You get seven or eight of them. Exactly what you need. Do you have any seasonal movies that you love watching this time of year for, for to celebrate Halloween? Um, really almost anything. I mean, I, I grew up watching horror movies much more than I read books. I, I was too creeped out by the covers of horror paperbacks back in the seventies and eighties. So I mostly read like military adventure fiction, like men's adventure stuff, lots of Clive Cussler and, and, and things like that. And lots of science fiction. But in terms of movies, you know, I think for me, well, there's actually a couple of things. So in terms of books, I usually reread Ray Bradbury, Something Wicked This Way Comes, uh, every October. Um, I mean, that makes me sound so pretentious, but it just sort of happens. And I also usually reread something by Shirley Jackson, either a bunch of her short stories or We've Always Lived in the Castle or her biography. Or I just, I really like her a lot. And she always feels very October to me, especially Haunting a Hill House. In terms of movies, for me... The, this is such a pretentious kick, but it just looks so fall is um, the trouble with Harry, the Alfred Hitchcock movie. That movie is so beautifully fall. It's, you know, and it's interesting because when they did it, they had a really warm fall when they shot it. And so they had to glue autumn foliage all over the trees because the leaves weren't changing color. But to me, that's such a fall movie. But the other one that I always wind up watching, just because I watch it a lot, and, and October seems to be the right time for it, is uh, the original Dawn of the Dead, the Romero one. There's something about that sort of chilly, just turning into winter, Pennsylvania landscape full of zombies that always feels, you know, like October to me. 
Cool. So uh, here at Two Librarians Walk Into a Shelf, we play a game. It's a play on the old favorite Kiss, Mary Kill game. And we, oh, call okay. it, right. we call it Display, Shelve, and Discard. So uh, give me an author that you would display for everyone to see, an author you would always want to keep on your shelf, and an author you would just discard completely. Okay. Display, shelve, or discard. For display, I think I would do Michael McDowell, to be honest. Not enough people read him, and he needs to be read more. To shelve, it would be Shirley Jackson. It blows my mind how rarely I find her in some libraries. Because usually when I do events at libraries, there's a few authors I check out to see if they've got them. And I'm so shocked when they don't have Shirley Jackson. And I would also throw in Clive Barker's Books of Blood. Everyone has the novels. No one ever has the Books of Blood. And those are the books that, those are the short stories that got so many people into horror in the 80s. And they're still, they still hold up. So I'm cheating already. Discard Deacon. Um, I don't. I don't oh. see the point of being Koontz. <laughs> you knew that one. That one. You were went hard for <laughs> Dean Koontz there. I like it. I like it. <laughs> All right, Grady. So what? Uh, what are we looking for in the future from you? What do you have coming up? What are you working on? What's What's next? Um, well, I've got a couple of books coming out next year. One's a nonfiction book, and it's a little bit like Paperbacks from Hell, but it's not horror. It's about kung fu movies coming to America back in the 70s, and it's really a bizarre story. I mean, uh, it sort of starts out back with these underground judo rings in the 20s and 30s, back when, like, you know, and even the turn of the century when America went sort of crazy for judo and, like, Teddy Roosevelt was doing judo in the White House. And then that sort of all ended when we basically rounded up everyone of Japanese descent and threw them in a concentration camp. And like, you know, that, that ended a lot of that judo craze. But then you have all this stuff in the seventies. It was just bonkers. I mean, you had these segregated martial arts tournaments with these black martial artists who really were the, the people holding on to a lot of these forms being barred from competing and, and then going on and protesting and striking. And um, you had the movies coming out from dudes who were like, there's a, great story we have about this pornographer from Atlanta who was a martial art or a kung fu movie distributor. He thought he could make him rich and get him into a legitimate business and, and, and get him, he wound up going to prison. But he did wild stuff. Like the weekend one of his kung, his big kung fu movie opened is the same weekend that he put a pipe bomb in a business competitor's truck and killed him and then went to the wreckage site and took a piece of the guy's hit phone and had it embedded in Lucite to make a paperweight out of it. I mean, it was just, I mean, just crazy stories all through this thing. So that's a nonfiction book next year. And then the fiction book I have that's coming out is a novel called the final girl support group, which is about a support group for final girls. And if, if you're not as, as nerdy about horror movies as I am, uh, a final girl is the girl who survives the horror movie. And, and I wanted to write a book about sort of what, what does it mean when the worst thing that can happen to you has happened at 17? You just saw all your friends die and you've got to live with that for the rest of your life. And the book is about a support group for these women. It's about 20 years after they sort of like had their incidents that sent them here. And, and they're all sort of questioning why they're still doing this. Maybe it's time to move on. Do I really need this? And someone starts to kill them one by one. And of course, only the most paranoid member believes that it's, um, it's, uh, it's someone targeting them particularly. But, you know, and they've all reacted to what happened to them in different ways. I mean, some have substance issues. Some have used it to really become their best selves and try to help other victims of, of violence. Some have become total agoraphobic shut-ins. 
I wanted to write a book because, you know, if you love horror movies, especially as a kid, there's a moment where you realize that you've spent a lot of your life watching people getting murdered. And, and you sort of have to sit there and think, well, what does this say about me? You know, what it, and, and there is something about violence and women and horror and entertainment. It's just a very weird needle to thread. And I really wanted to write a book that not only was fun, but I also really, every book is sort of an author sort of wrestling with some part of themselves that they, they're trying to figure out. And that was the part of myself I was just trying to figure out with this book. It's the same with Southern Book Club. You know, I really wanted to figure out two things. One is what the 90s were all about, because that's a weird decade. Mm-hmm. And um, and the other was sort of, I wanted to figure something out about my mom's life. I, I You know, and, and not just her life, but a lot of these women that I had sort of gotten to know as an adult who were friends, parents and things like just what I, I just wanted to figure out their experience a little bit, because to me, I couldn't quite understand it. And I couldn't quite understand adult friendship. Like, how do you make friends as an adult? Why is it so weird? Why do we have these really passionate friendships where in high school and these much cooler friendships when we're adults, but they seem to last for longer. So, you know, that was my attempt to sort of think about the nineties and, and parents and, 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 and adult friendship. And then final girl support groups. I sort of just, I, I just really wanted to sort of figure out what is, what does it mean that I've probably watched for entertainment more people getting killed and murdered in horrible ways than your average bear? All right. Those, those both sound great. So do. I'm the, looking forward to them. The Kung Fu movie one sounds bonkers. Yes. Oh, it's crazy. And it's going to be super heavy on the art. We're, we're dealing with all the licenses and clearances for that now. And it's just, some of this artwork is amazing. Oh, that's ridiculous. I can't wait. Can't wait. Can't wait. Well, sir, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, this has been this has been awesome. No, this thanks for a- having me. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I tend to ramble, so I apologize. No need to apologize. Uh, well, we hope that you have a wonderful Halloween season. And um, you know what we say at the end of our podcast, uh, no matter what they say, no matter what they do. Don't trust a robot. Thank you. Thank you, sir. <laughs> No, no, no. Thanks. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Bye, you guys. All right. Bye. See ya. Bye. Uh, Thanks to Grady for talking to us today. You can find his books all over the system and in our online offerings. In the branches, you can find copies of the Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires, Paperbacks from Hell, My Best Friend's Exorcism, We Sold Our Souls, and Horror Store. And from Hoopla, you can get the audiobooks for Horror Store, We Sold Our Souls, Paperbacks from Hell, and my best friend's exorcism, as well as the film Satanic Panic. On Overdrive or Livy, you can find Paperbacks from Hell ebook. You can find Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires ebook and audiobook. And books that Grady mentioned, we have plenty of Shirley Jackson in the system. We also have The House Next Door by Ann Rivers Siddons. And on Overdrive, you can find The Auctioneer by Joan Sampson. That includes a brand new introduction by Grady Hendrix. So check those out. Uh, for the rest of October, now that it's spooky season, you can join us every ooh, week for ooh. spooky or Halloween themed uh, books, recommendations, movies, whatever. All of that. Anything for the season, we're going to pumpkin spice this October and come at you every weekend with a new scary podcast of some sort. Just no candy corn. Nope. <laughs> 
Or circus peanuts. Ew. Ugh. All right. So okay. that, that does it for this episode. And remember what we always say. Don't, don't trust, trust robots. robots. Bye. The views expressed by the hosts are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the Huntsville-Madison County Library System. For more information on the Huntsville-Madison County Public Library, visit us online at hmcpl.org. If you'd like to learn more about some of the topics discussed today, visit your local library, which is us. No representation is made that your librarian is more knowledgeable than other librarians or that they have any expertise on your particular project.